how is everybody doing today? Good, good. Um, hey, uh, glad you are here. I'll just give it a second. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. Give it up for Fern's lovely wife, Jess, up there. If you didn't know, Jess does a lot of the decorating around here, and she put up this massive tree, and she, yes, she's awesome. She does so much around here behind the scenes. Uh, it's great. Um, so we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have it on your phone, you could open up to the book of 1 Timothy, um, and we will start there. We're, we're going to do 1 Timothy today. For those of you that are taking diligent notes and following along, we're going to do 1 Timothy today. And then we're going to take a break for Christmas Eve. We're going to take a break for New Year's Eve. And then we'll be back in it the first Sunday in January. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, and today's passage, I'll just start by saying this, is really one of the most controversial passages in the whole entire New Testament. And it's one of those passages that if you are just casually reading or somebody's like flipping through the Bible and they land on this, it could be like, whoa, what, what does this passage mean? So part of today is not only am I going to like teach what the Word says, I'm going to spend a good chunk of today is like teaching and equipping you how to read the Bible. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to just tell you exactly what it's saying. I'm going to teach you how that we should as Christians read the Bible on our own. Does that sound good? Okay, because it's, me, it's one way for me to just tell you what it means and for you to be like, okay, well, that's what it means. But I want to help you help yourselves when you read God's Word and you come across a passage that's confusing, how we process that. Or if a coworker comes to you and says, hey, I just read this passage. And, uh, you know, like um, they say, oh, look, at, if you're on the slides up there, James uh, 2.24 says this. And I'm going to read three confusing passages for you, okay? I'll read three confusing passages. James 2.24, it says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, for me, I've always taught, you guys have always heard, that a man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, so that nobody may boast, right? And so if somebody's like, hey, look what I just found and they drop this verse in your lap, kind of like a hand grenade, and it's like, what do you do with it? Um, that's one. Number two, uh, there's another verse that's actually one we'll be covering today is 1 Timothy 2, 9. Women should not have braided hair. Okay? Any braided hairs up in here? If somebody is reading God's Word at, like, its face value, and they come to this and say, hey, in the women should not have braided hair, then based on this passage, if you're here today with braided hair, that you're in sin. Okay? That's, okay. In the third confusing text, somebody says, hey, I just read Matthew 18, 9, and it says, Jesus told us, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So Jesus is telling us to pluck out our eyeballs and throw it in the garbage. Um, <laughs> right? So what do you do with these, what do you do with these passages? Um, and, and even not just these passages, 
But out of, uh, out of context passages, like another good one that it's not on the screens, um, that is repeated a lot and you see it on t-shirts a lot or maybe coffee mugs, is Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's a good passage, and I love that passage, but the way a lot of people use it is out of context, right? Like, that verse doesn't mean that I could actually do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Meaning that, hey, I could, you know, because here's the thing, no matter how hard I try and no matter how hard I pray and how much I fast, if I try out for the lions, I'm probably not going to make it. So I, I, in fact, can't do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you're like... Well, that's how I was always told. I could do any accomplishment through Christ who strengthens me. But if you read this verse, so like, here's the thing. With all these verses we just read in this verse, no particular verse is meant to be read outside of its context. Does that make sense? So no particular verse is meant to be read outside. Like Philippians 4.13 is meant to be read in all of Philippians 4. So when you take Philippians 4.13, one sentence out of a whole sentence, it changes its meaning. So what Paul was saying to the church in Philippi, you know, if you, read, if you read, I won't get into the whole back part for time's sake, but if you read the whole part, he's saying, I can endure all different types of suffering through Christ who strengthens me. So he's saying that, hey, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be beaten for the gospel, but I can endure all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. It changes the meaning a little bit, right? It changes how that we use it in our context it, it's really in the context of, of suffering. Um, it's the same with like James 24. Do you guys want to put up that very first slide one more time for me? James 2.24. And I had somebody send me this. Um, it says, oh no, yeah, yeah, that one. It says, if a person is justified by works and not faith alone, that verse wasn't meant to be taken out of James chapter 2. And that verse is only meant to be read in its original context of James chapter 2 verses 1 through 35 right? Here's a good example of this when we, when we talk about context in reading the Bible. You know, I, like most of you, uh, got married and I did traditional wedding vows. And if somebody said, hey, I'm going to read to you what Jim said on his wedding vows. And, they, and Jim said he will love Nicole in health and in, 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 for, in when she's rich. That's what he told her. He said, I'll love you as long as you're healthy and as long as you're rich. And did I say I'll love you for richer? Yes. I also said for poorer. You know, like all our traditional vows. Did I also say I'll love you in health? Yes, but what did I also say? I'll love you in sickness. But you took the context, or you take one sentence out of my vow and took it out of context. And sometimes we do that with God's word. And this is a very, for me, this is very fascinating. And so if you're taking notes, write down. I have a couple things to share um, before we actually get into our text. But um, there's two considerations when we study God's Word. And the first is this. It's um, the principle of harmony. Everybody say harmony. harmony. The principle of harmony, okay? So the principle of harmony, state, harmony states, we interpret each individual, individual Scripture in light of all of Scripture. Okay? So it says in the... Um, Later on in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. And we, as believers and as Christians, believe that 
in the Bible, all Scripture is God-breathed. So even though he used many different authors, it all, there's ultimately one author of the Word of God, and that's God, right? There's one author of the Bible, that's God. Um, he is the author, and when we see two Scriptures that seem to contradict itself, we look at each passage in its context with the conviction that they're ultimately unified because God doesn't contradict himself, right? The word, of, the word doesn't contradict himself. And I challenge you, if anybody tells you, hey, how do you believe the Bible? The Bible's full of contradictions. The first thing you should ask is, can you show me one? <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't think of any right now, or I watched this TikTok, and this guy said a couple, I just can't, you know, it's like, I always ask people, like, not to be argumentative, but if you think it's full of contradictions, share with me, and it says in the principle of harmony, you look at each passage um, in its context, how it was written, and say they're ultimately unified. Um, a good example of the principle of harmony is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that we serve, there's only one God. The Lord your God is one, the Bible says. So there's only one God. But in Matthew 6, it talks about God the Father, in John chapter 10, it says that Jesus is equally God. And then in Acts chapter 5, it says the Holy Spirit is God. So we have God the Father, we have God, Jesus is God, and then the Holy Spirit who indwells us is also God. And so it seems like if there's one God, but we see that there's three gods, how does that work? And that's how we get the doctrine of Trinity. There's one God existing eternally in three persons of the Trinity. The three is one. Um, so we must put all Scripture together to understand each individual passage. So that's, that's kind of the principle of harmony. So when you see something that doesn't make sense, we have the conviction that God is the author, and He knew what He was talking about, and He isn't wrong. We are probably misunderstanding, and we need to under, look at each verse in its context. Okay? That's the principle of harmony. The other one's called the principle of history. All right? The principle of history. God uses ancient cultures to reveal himself. Always. God uses—God um, worked through the timeline of American history. He stepped into timelines, and Jesus was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem before the invention of cell phones, before computers, before color TV, before, all, before automobiles, and all of these things. Jesus God chose Jesus to come at that time, and he revealed himself in that culture. So most of the Bible, or all the New Testament, is written approximately 50 to 80 years from that date in what we consider 33 to 0 AD. Does that make sense? So he, he, God chooses to reveal himself in Scripture. Um, when we read the book of Psalms, we see that there are so many awesome truths about the person of God. But it was also written by King David who existed before Christ, way back when. So there's also going to be some contextual things that made a lot of sense to him, but may not make a lot of sense to us, right? In Bethlehem in that day, everybody probably at some point was a shepherd, or they, they worked with shepherds, or their best friend was a shepherd, or their dad was a shepherd. They understood shepherd analogies, right? So when Jesus talked about the lost sheep, everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. But how many of here has ever worked as a shepherd? 
Like, I, I haven't. None of us have. None of us have been shepherds. So we look back and try to understand the history and the context of what was happening to understand the truth of what Jesus was trying to say. Okay? Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the principle of history. And so it, um, Jesus used metaphors about new wine and old wineskins. To the best of my knowledge, nobody here uses wineskins anymore. So it's an analogy most of us don't understand, so we have to look back and see. Um, he uses a thing of planting and sowing, and that was a very agricultural society. So everybody had a garden or a farm. They knew about planting and, and, and uh, sowing and reaping. They also had lamps. And so there's a story about ten virgins with lampstands and lamps that ran out of oil. I never had a lamp run out of oil in my entire life. I had a, I had a flashlight run out of batteries. That might have been more fitting. You know, one, if it happened in our day and age, like they all had flashlights and a few of them brought extra batteries. <laughs> and, you know, like we just got to understand it was, in a different, it was in a different context. So no biblical text is expressed in a culture-free manner. Meaning it's all expressed in culture. It's all expressed in their time. It wasn't made, the Bible wasn't written independent of time and place. It was written in a specific time and specific place. Um, it's not in our context. We must appreciate the truth in its context and derive the universal truths out of each passage. Okay? So God has revealed scriptural truth in the context of specific historical and cultural settings. Um, for example, 1 Timothy was written from Paul to Timothy in the church of Ephesus in the first century. So that's the, we, we study that context, what was going on, what was happening, and all those things. And so when we look at this text and we look at these, these things, we must interpret, we must look for two different types of truths in God's word. And this is kind of, once we broke down the harmony, we broke down the history, and now it's trying to look at the truths, okay? So we should ask ourselves two questions when we approach any text, right? When you approach any text, we should ask ourselves two questions. And the, the first one is this. Is this a cultural expression, which means it, it changes? Or is this a um, universal truth, which never changes? Okay? Is this a cultural expression, or is this a universal truth? And I think when we go through God's Word, we'll be able to see kind of which is which. And, it be, and even today, it'll begin to make sense a little bit more. Um, in uh, a cultural expression is a command specific for that date and time, and it changes based on the culture. Um, again, we talk about braided hair. Um, braided hair may have meant something back then to that culture, and if we look at the whole context of Scripture, we don't see braided hair um, forbidden in, in every setting, so we determine that that's a cultural expression, um, not a universal truth. Um, a good example is, let's say that, um, let's say that J-Road was experiencing a lot of conflict over the coffee and the cookies that people so graciously make and bring in. So let's say there was a lot of conflict, and there was fighting every Sunday, and it just created a lot of strife. And, um, you know, Thomas George, our district superintendent of our denomination, writes us, and he's like, hey, I see what's going on there. 
you guys need to stop fighting. And a matter of fact, just get rid of the coffee and cookies altogether, you know, and stop the fighting and get along, you know. Let's say that happened. And let's say we documented it. And people looked 2,000 years from now and saw that Thomas George wrote J-Road and said, don't make coffee, don't eat cookies, and stop fighting. <laughs> what would we say? We, like, and what if they said, hey, we're never going to do coffee and cookies again because they must be evil. <laughs> but we would say that for this church, in this culture, and at this time in 2023, it wasn't working out so well. So we decided to kill it. But 2,000 years ago, it's no big deal, right? And so that's kind of how we adjust. But some churches may read something like that and say, all coffee is off limits forever because they forbid it in this church at this time. And the universal truth of that made-up story is, hey, stop fighting. Get a, the church needs unity. Unity is good. God loves unity in the church. So, okay. So, um, now that we understand the, the harmony, the history, understanding what's cultural and what's universal, let's read our text. Um, this text is, uh, we're going to read 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. So if you have your Bibles or you have your phones, you're free to open it. Um, and I am going to read the whole text, but we're going to break this up in two parts. So the second half, we're going to study on January 6th, I believe. Um, the first Sunday in January. So, it says this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. Paul says, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in the faith and love and holiness and self-control. As I said, one of the most controversial texts of the New Testament. Ta-da! <laughs> We're going to start today, and then on Christmas Eve morning, we'll finish it out. For No, I'm just kidding. You guys see why I'm waiting till January, and so we'll, we'll take a pause. But we'll study this whole passage um, and part of doing First Timothy in its entirety is we're not just going to, like, skip over verses that are hard, right? Like, we were going to study it all together. Um, and there's, there's cultural context things here which change, and there's also universal truths here that never change. And so it's almost like weeding a garden, right? You want to pull up the weeds and set them aside, and you don't want to pull up the fruit and you know out of its place so you got to kind of weed around these verses and make sure you pull what we believe is is truth and um that's where we land okay um okay so as we said last week this whole passage and a lot of what they say in first timothy is um prob is addressing a problem i think the word they use is polemic in character so it's all like addressing problems that were going on there was false teachers there was 
all of this stuff happening, and he's writing to say, hey, we need to fix these problems. And that's a lot of what he's saying. So we're going to just, today we're going to go through um, verses 8 through 10. And we're not, we're going to do verses 11 through 15 um, after, after uh, New Year's, okay? So the first part, uh, 8 through 10, is dealing with two problems in the church. Here are the problems, and I'm going to lay them out for you, and then I'm going to explain. There was divisive men in the church, and there was distracting women in the church. There were distracting women and divisive men. And so he's kind of addressing both of these things. Um, so in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we did touch on this verse last week. It's kind of a middle verse between evangelistic prayer, which we did last week, and this week, which is um, addressing problems. So we hit on this. So he says, I desire um, then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. There's two parts to this. I believe this verse, he wasn't making a point about your posture in prayer. Okay? Is it fine to pray lifting up hands? Absolutely. Like, I pray with my hands up sometimes. I pray with my hands in my pocket. I pray with my hands folded. I pray in all different ways. The posture of prayer, if you look out all through Scripture, is not really described in its entirety. So when we teach our kids— and I believe this started in Sunday school or in children's church or when we're on the dinner table, I say, what do I tell my kids? Fold your hands and bow your head. The reason I do that is because my kids will touch each other and make faces at each other during prayer time. <laughs> I believe that's kind of how the bowing your head and folding your hands started is, is, I mean, you can pray. Like I pray when I drive my son to school and I'm not closing my eyes for five minutes while I'm praying because I would die. So God isn't as concerned if your eyes are closed or open, but when we close our eyes, it's oftentimes easier to focus on God, isn't it? And people are walking around, you know, there's something happening outside. When our eyes are closed, it's just us and God. It's the same way with our hands. Um, if this was written to today, he's, you know, he, he would say something like this, I desire that in every place that men should pray with folded hands that are without, uh, with, with holy folded hands without anger or quarreling. So, you know, it's, it's, we believe that the posture of the prayer is the, the context expression because they prayed with their hands up. But the heart, the universal truth about what he's saying is your hands should be holy and that your hearts should be without division and quarreling. So that's kind of the, the two things um, that he's saying. The posture is contextual, um, but the universal truth is that when you go to God, you should go to God with holy hands. So how do we go to God with holy hands? So the first is like, the good news is, is that if you are saved, you are a new creation in Christ. And you, all your sins are forgiven that you've ever committed. So when we go to heaven, God won't see all the bad things you've done. He'll see that you're covered in a white robe that was bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the good news. Like, God's not rolling out a list of all the bad things we did. And he, like, we're holy before God. And every day we're going to stumble and fall in this world. We go to God and ask for daily forgiveness of our sins. But when we go to God and hold out our hands, our hands can and should be holy. 
You might say, well, I'm not holy. If you're in Christ, you're holy. Well, I messed up. Did you ask forgiveness? Yes, then you're holy. Like, you don't, you're holy if you've asked Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. And we go to, we go to God daily for confession. But our hands can and should be holy because God makes us holy. Um, and we should ask for forgiveness for our sins on a daily basis. It's good. And then he says, in that first part, he says uh, that you should pray lifting up holy hands without what? Anger in your hearts and fighting with other people. So he's saying, um, confess your sins to God before you pray. Make sure you do that. But also, confess your sins with other people and deal with your problems before you go to God. Because if you go to God and say, God, I pray that you bless 2024. I pray that it's a great year. I pray that we can finally get a house. I pray that we get our car fixed. And you're going to God in prayer, but you hate your brother or sister. I believe that's not good. And dare I say that I don't believe he hears our prayer when we have this anger or bitterness in our heart. And so he says, deal with this. Because it says in the Bible, if you go to bring your gift to church, he said, leave your gift in your pew, go reconcile with your brother, then come back and give your gift. So he's saying, before you even write your tithe check, make sure that, you are, that you're not fighting with anybody. Because unity is so important to God. Unity in the church. And this is one of the last things Jesus prayed for when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross on Calvary. One of the handful of things he prayed for is that the church would be unified. He said, Father, may they be one as we are one. So he's like, there's no room for conflict in the church. There's no room for gossip. There's no room for fighting. There's no room for this. So we need to have unity. So that's what he's saying. So apparently you could decide, you could think that the men in the church were fighting. They were quarreling. They had anger in their hearts. But they were lifting their hands and praying in front of everybody. He's like, before you lift your hands, make sure you're praying with holy hands and there's no more fighting. So that's the truth there. So the truth for us is make sure we settle our debts with other people and we sell our debts with God. And the question for you is, are you praying to God with anger in your heart and fighting with others? That would be the universal truth for us. If the answer is no, then awesome. Great. Keep it up. There's going to be times where you do get mad at somebody, and you got to take care of it when it happens. <laughs> like, in, in unity in the church is the universal truth. Okay. Um, second part is distracting women in the church. So apparently, after reading this verse, you could tell that women, specifically women, because he calls out men for fighting, but specifically women were causing distraction in the church. Um, and he says this in verses 9 and 10. Um, Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is a very, like, very good word. This is a very good word. Um, first of all, they use this word adorning. Adorning. Let your adorning not be with, but let your adorning be with these things. Let your adorning not be with gold, 
but let your adorning be with the good works of a godly character. Like, let people, when they see you, women, let people see a woman who loves God, and let the people see a woman who does good works and loves others, and let them, let a man, for single ladies, let a man be attracted to your godliness and not your financial status or your body. Does that make sense? And it's kind of like this division between like, like worldly beauty and what the world thinks is beautiful and what God thinks is beautiful and godly beauty. And that's where like, like my prayer, and I'll read this verse at the end of, this, of today in a few minutes. My hope is that my sons, if they choose to get married, if they choose to get married, find a Proverbs 31 woman who loves God. And when they look for a woman, they're not looking for a woman who's beautiful just by the world's standards. A matter of fact, I hope that's last on their list. But they look at the heart first, and they see a woman who loves God. And that is so beautiful. The Bible describes a woman who loves God as more precious than what? Rubies or gold, whatever. But it meant like women who love God are precious. And here's the thing why I believe they said women who love God are, are like rubies. They're so hard to find. My single fellows in this place could probably attest to that. And the single ladies, a man who loves God is hard to find. It's not easy. There's not a plethora of them on Tinder and uh, Facebook dating. <laughs> Shout out to anybody who met on Tinder. I just saw somebody go, worked out for us. That Christian mingle life. Um, all right. Adorning means to bring attention to yourself. Bring attention to yourself. Bring attention to yourself. Um, when we read this verse, the context we should see is Jesus, who was God of the universe, came down and he chose to be born in a stable and he chose to tell the people uh, that were, he told to tell shepherds first a lowly working class people about him. He didn't go to the kings. He didn't go to the influencers. He didn't go to the celebrities. He went to common everyday people and God clothed himself in humility. And that's kind of where we take our cues. Jesus didn't even have a home. So by most means he was homeless because he said the son of man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus was a humble servant when he was on earth. And I'm not saying that any of you should take a vow of poverty but we should always look at ourselves and how can we portray humility with how we dress, how we act, what we do. That's kind of why I'm wearing a llama shirt that we bought at Walmart. You know, like it's not exactly screaming wealth, um, but it's asking like the way the world defines success and the way that we find our rank in the world is usually based on money and how well you are doing financially. And I'm here to say like, Bible does not define success in dollars. Amen? Like it, doesn't, like, it doesn't matter what your bank account is, what your retirement is. It's like God looks at the character of your heart. He looks at your, your surrenderedness, if that's even a word, to God. 
And that's success. That's wisdom. And it has nothing to do with money. Um, so, he's, so, he's, so he's addressing this problem. Women in the church were causing a distraction based on how they dressed. So Paul gives instruction. He's, he gives a do and a do not, and we'll break it down. The do, he says, dress in respectable apparel. Um, so dress with respectable apparel. Dress with modesty. Does everybody understand what modesty means in our day and age? And I believe it's, that's a universal truth, like modesty. Um, dress with self-control. And do not, he says in his words, um, have braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. Um, so there's two universal truths I take out of this. And if you think it's a little bit different, send me an email. It's brian at jroadchurch.org. No, just, kidding. just kidding. Thank you, Bridget. Uh, it's Jim at jroadchurch.org, in all honesty. Um, but here's the universal truth. Um, women are to dress modestly in the church. Okay? Like, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Um, this isn't a J-Road command. This isn't a Pastor Jim command. This isn't our elders command. It's what we derive a universal truth from the word for today's text, is women are to dress modestly in the church. Um, a lot of this is, um, like, sexually speaking, like, drawing, like, attention, like, using your body to draw attention of others. So he's saying adorning, He's saying, don't let your adorning be merely outward. Um, so don't let the attention that's drawn to you be based solely on your body. Does that make sense? Um, that's where we get modesty. And, um, and the question you ask, well, is it a sin to wear makeup? Is it a sin to do your hair? Is it a sin to dress nice? Um, I believe no. It's a, it's, it is not a sin to look nice and to dress nice. Um, again, with all of God's word, it all goes back to your heart. Specifically, this verse is addressed to women. It all goes back to your heart, women. Like, when you get dressed, what's going on in your heart? That's where I think Paul is getting at. Like, what's going on in your heart? If you are getting dressed, and you are hoping to draw attention to your body, and you want men to notice your body, is that the right motive you should have in church? would say no. And so it's examine your heart, ladies. Like, that's what he's saying, basically. Examine your heart in seeing, like, like, again, what do you, if you're, especially if you're a single lady, what do you want to draw guys with? Do you want to draw guys with your heart for the Lord, or you want to draw guys with your body? One of them is going to remain, and, you know, one of them is not going to remain. I, you know, I'm 40 or almost 40 now, so I kind of get that as well. Um, but he's saying if you're just solely trying to draw attention to yourself, your physical features, is that the right motive? Um, yes, and we've all, there's a million examples of what that is, um, and I just believe it's a heart issue. I also believe in Matthew 5.28, I don't believe, I read in Matthew 5.28, um, men are commanded not to look with lust, and so it's like both are given a command, so they're like, like here, it's like women dress modestly. Don't try to draw attention to your body and your physical features. And he's saying also men, don't look with lust. That's on you to not do that. Um, and so, you know, we're, there's, they're both given commands there. Um, and so men need to not lust after women no matter what they're wearing. But women here, 
specifically in 1 Timothy, are asked to dress modestly. You know, I don't know about you, but this seemed to be like, this seemed to be like the role of like the pastor's wife in the, in the, old, in the church I used to go to. And made many old churches, like the pastor's wife, like if somebody's wearing something they shouldn't, like the pastor's wife like pulled them aside and was like, hey, you know, like, when you, like I don't know if you noticed this, but you're drawing attention for the wrong reasons. Uh, my wife has not assumed that role. We kind of just preach it here and let you guys decide in your hearts. But it would be like, you know, for many different things. Um, but rather than, rather than adorning men to yourself with your body, you should draw them with your good deeds and godly character. That's the main premise. So it's saying, hey, I'm just going to, you know, dress totally covered head to toe, but if your heart is after the Lord, you're missing the context of the passage. Adorn yourself with, uh, with good works and a love for Jesus. Um, especially, you know, I just want to say for single ladies that happen to be here, let your devotion to God be attractive. Um, you guys know, Nicole and I met in the church. Um, like, you know, I, I could say without a shadow of a doubt, the thing that attracted me to her was that she was a youth leader. She was serving in the kids' men. She uh, was in a Bible study. Like, she was helping people around her. Like, she was a godly woman. And I said, that's the type of wife I want. It wasn't, like, it wasn't anything else. That was what drew me to her. And, and, and I believe that's kind of the rock we build on is, is on Jesus. It wasn't anything else. Um, and you might be saying here, and you're like, well, yeah, all the men I come in contact with don't find that attractive. So that's good that you do, but most men don't. And, I, and I'm here to say the right men do find that attractive. There is men out there that are godly. There's men out there that love Jesus, love his word. They are in church. They're serving. They're doing all sorts of good things, and they find a godly character attractive. And those are the men that you want to wait for. Right? That should be the advice we give our kids, our grandkids, is wait. God will bring the right person. God will bring the right man or the right woman. But don't settle for a man or woman who doesn't love God, thinking that I just got to do this. Like, God is our provider, right? He provides what we need in the right time, and that includes a man or a woman. And so um, the second part of adorning and for women is women should not flaunt their wealth in the church, okay? Um, women should not flaunt their wealth in the church. And it's like, I have this Yeti cup. I am totally flaunting my wealth here today. This cup probably costs $3,000. But I got it in a stocking from my mother-in-law last year. Shout out, Shelly. Thank you for the Yeti cup. Um, but women should not flaunt their wealth in the church. So wealth in the church is very contextual to a place and time. For them, it was braided hair and gold and pearls. Uh, for us, it might be Patagonia and Gucci and driving a Mercedes-Benz and parking right in front with a with a Bentley or something, and you just want everybody to see how wealthy you are based on how you dressed. And you have to understand the other part. Like, I believe there's something to that. Like, Jesus was humble. We should be humble in ourselves. But you have to understand, the people of Ephesus, many of them, they left their home because they were being persecuted. So imagine if there's persecution going on all in West Michigan, and we had to flee to Indiana 
And we all had to like, we were all kind of like living how we could live. We didn't take anything with us but the clothes on our back. We're fighting to like find a meal to eat. We're fighting to find clothes to wear. And somebody comes to church dressed head to toe in gold jewelry. You know, it's the saying, it's not, it's not right for this setting. It's not right to flaunt your wealth like that. Um, because there are people there really, really struggling. It's same with us. There are people here really struggling. And he's like, I think God, and I think Paul's saying, if you have that much wealth to buy a $10,000 tennis bracelet, maybe you should help the people in the church first. Maybe you should be in touch with people going on in the church. And it's the same way here. There's people here living paycheck to paycheck. There's people here that have a transmission go out and they cannot afford it, so their car just sits. There's people here that hit up food pantries on a weekly basis and they're struggling. And so if you're in an MC and you're just talking about, I can't decide between a Mercedes or a BMW or a brand new house or this, it, it could be crushing to people that are following God. And, and he's saying, like, you know, be careful of how you flaunt your wealth and status in the church. Um, and again, it was, a, it, was a, it was a distraction. And it goes back to your body question with modesty. Like, if you want people to notice how wealthy you are, what is your motive behind that? Like, wow, that person is really smart, or wow, that person is, you know. He's saying, let the adorning be with a heart for God. Let your adorning be how much you love God. Let, let, let that attract people. So, um, so he's saying adorn yourselves in the fruit of a godly character. Um, and so with all this, I mentioned Proverbs 31, because he talks about men fighting and angry and praying with soiled hands for a little bit, but then he goes into talking about, you know, women being distracted, and he's saying, like, this whole concept of worldly beauty, which is having a perfect body, having a perfect features, and yada, 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 and having the nice expensive clothes and all these things, that's all worldly beauty, but God gives women an example of godly beauty. And for our women here, my encouragement to you is, do you want to be a woman who's beautiful by the world's standards, or do you want to be a woman that's beautiful by God's standards? And do you want to, like, do you want people to notice you and say, wow, that is a beautiful woman in the Lord, and we have so many, so many, so many beautiful women in the Lord here at J-Road. I just want to shout out to all the beautiful women of the Lord here. Give them a round of applause, guys, if you want. Yes, thank you. <laughs> guys, I say that not, not for any reason other than when we have events, like if you guys who get the J-Road text messages, I found out that we're serving a meal for 65 people on Friday to Kingdom Life in the recovery ministry. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I got to find people to make meals for 65 people, like my phone flooded with text messages from primarily women saying, I will, I will help with this meal. And I'm like, that's beautiful. It's December 22nd, a few days, the busiest, literally the busiest time of the year. And all of these women did that. I think that's beautiful. We have women leading MCs. We have women helping the poor. We have women doing so many things. We have a lot of beautiful women here at Jared. And so I wanted to end by reading a big chunk of Proverbs 31, which I believe outlines beauty of a woman, okay? Um, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. It'll be on the screens. You guys could also bookmark it in your Bibles if you want to check it out later. Um, and I know it starts out with excellent wife, 
we believe the universal truth here is for all women, um, not just wives, but it's principles here too. So verse 10, an excellent wife, um, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it, and with the fruit of her hands she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the, um, to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself, her clothing in fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates uh, when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. As I said, I think we have amazing women at J-Road. For guys, I encourage you, let Proverbs 31, among other verses, but Proverbs 31 be your guide when looking for a wife. And for women, all women, read this and see um, the truths, the universal truths that we can apply to our lives on a daily basis. And so after we read this first portion, the question is, is for men, are you forgiving those that you are fighting with? Are you have bitterness and anger in your heart? If you do, confess it to God, ask for forgiveness, reconcile with those people if you need to. And for women, let your devotion to God be your beauty. Let's pray. God, uh, there's so much truth to unpack here, God, and I pray that we just dwell on it all day in the good words of what was taught, what was said. Um, God, uh, I pray that each and every one of us don't get caught up in what the world says is beautiful, but we, we stay focused on what you say is good, what you say is beautiful. God, we focus more on our character than on our physical appearance. We focus more on our heart and our devotion to you than our wealth. God, these are the things that are important to you. I pray for all our women here that for some, this might be a tough word. God, I pray that they just see that they don't have to be beautiful for anybody else but you, Father. And God, I pray for those as an encouragement. I pray that they're just encouraged. 
And God, I pray that during this Christmas season, um, us men can be uh, the leaders that you've called us to of our homes. We love our wives like Christ loved the church. And I pray for our wives as well and our, and our women of J-Road, that they follow you and they look to these verses, God, for strength and for direction. So we, we love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.